building strong tower. Good to see our family this morning. Glad you could be with us today. If you're our guest, we want to welcome you again uh, to our church and our family. We're glad you can be with us and enjoy uh, the family together. Amen. Amen. My name is Ben. I'm lead pastor here and just want to welcome you. Uh, If you have your Bibles or you want to follow along on the screen, we are going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. Grab your phone, your tablet, your Bible, whatever you got, or you can just listen as we read along. Mark chapter 9. As you're turning there, I want to welcome you again to Starting Point this Sunday. It's right after church. If you're uh, here for the first time, it's right outside. Or uh, if you're you know, coming back for second or third time and haven't found a way to get connected in our church, it's a great way uh, to get to know some of our staff and some of our leaders here at Strong Tower. We'd love to have you. It's about 10, 15 minutes after service. Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 42 through 50 today. 42 through 50. And I'm going to warn you, it's a tough passage. It is a tough passage, and so uh, we're going to dive into the red letters. These are Jesus' words, uh, verses 42 through 50. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter life, better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of life, the way of life. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, as we come to your text and hear your very words to us, we pray you'd open our hearts, our minds to to listen, to not only hear, but to listen, to, to know what you are saying to us. May you open us up by your spirit to what you might say whether it's a word of encouragement or a word of challenge, a word that maybe we didn't expect, we pray that your spirit would speak to us. Open us up to that, that we might be transformed in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The most popular course in the history of Yale University was on happiness. They called it Happiness 101. And the class was first offered in 2017 as one of the professors. She was a psychology professor. Her name is Lori Santos. She was witnessing amongst the student body a massive mental health crisis. 
She's, met, she's witnessing that all the students are, are struggling. They're, they're trying to figure out who they are. They're, they're depressed. They're discouraged. They're anxious. There's all this happening amongst the students in her classroom. And so she decided she was going to do something about it. She was going to offer a class that could be helpful. And so when they offered the class, the enrollment soared, and it became the biggest class enrollment they had had in 300 years at the school. 300 years. And then the pandemic hit. And all the classes had to go online, including that class. And the class went online and they decided to offer it for free. And now there's millions and millions of people who are burnt out and stressed and tired. And, and so when they open it up to the whole world for free, guess what? 3.7 million people enrolled in this class. Now it's definitely the largest class in Yale's history. And what's interesting in the class is that she talks about various methods for mental health and practices that you can do to try to improve your mental health. But, but the big takeaway that all the students said that really stood out to them the most was this. The big takeaway was this. What you think is going to make you happy doesn't make you happy. And imagine she's speaking to this student body of elite students, people who are the best of the best in their class, from their their city, their state, and they come to Yale University thinking that their life is going to be incredible because they're going to get that job and they're going to get that degree and they're going to get that great internship or whatever it is. And she tells them, look, what you think is going to make you happy doesn't. And then she goes through the brain science. And she says, let me show you why, just the scientific reasons why it won't make you happy. And this is what, to summarize it, the brain science says this. What makes you happy isn't receiving more, but it's giving more. I mean, literally, the scientific evidence says this, just the brain science itself, that what will make you happy, what will give you the good life that you desire, isn't that you would gain more and accumulate more and have all the things that you wish you'd have. It's actually that you would give yourself away. That's the good life. Now, listen, I mean, all of us in this room, everyone in our culture, we're all on the search for the good life. That, that, that's just part of, of the air we breathe. We, we are Americans. We, we want the American dream. We, we want to pursue the good life. And, and the problem is we have so many different competing visions for what the good life is. Right? If you talk to some people, the good life is just simply materialism. I got to accumulate as many things as I can. I got to have a house and a car and, and a nice, uh, you know, clothing uh, closet and all these different things. And, and if I can do that, the good life is really the full life. My life is full of things. Or then you talk to another person and, and it's really just hedonism. If you don't know what that word means, that means the pursuit of pleasure. If I can have all the pleasurable experiences, if I can go to the concerts and travel and, and eat the best food and, and have the nicest things, uh, you know, I can have the greatest pleasures in life, then the good life is really the fun life. Or maybe someone else, it might be careerism, right? Uh, I got to get ahead. I got I to be the best. I got to elevate myself to the next level. And, and so the good life is really the fruitful life. I mean, we could go on and on. There's all these different competing visions of what it means to be in the good life. And here we come to this text, and Jesus has a completely different vision. He says the good life, the, the gospel life, 
comes through death. Through death. Isn't that odd? I mean, we've been continuing this series through Mark, and we took a break for the last week or two weeks ago, and, and, and we're coming back into chapter 9 now. And we've been talking about how in the, in the book of Mark, it's really divided into two different sections. The first half of the Gospel of Mark is all driven by this question, who is Jesus? And now the second half of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, the rest of the Gospel, is all about this question, what did he come to do? So who is he and what did he come to do? In other words, you could say the gospel of Mark is summarized in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. That's what it means that he's, he's unpacking the gospel of Jesus. It's his person and its work. And now we come to chapter 9 and, and in the context, the disciples are arguing. And what are they arguing about? They're arguing about the good life. Right before this, if you go back just a few paragraphs, the disciples are arguing about this. Who is the greatest among them? Right? We've been following Jesus for a few years now, and we're starting to build a crowd around Jesus, and and we're having some success. We're healing people, and we're casting out demons, and we're, we're preaching amazing sermons, and all these people are following Jesus. Who is the greatest among us? Let's let's do a ranking system, right? And Jesus says, there's a different vision for the good life. You think the good life is about your status and your power and your importance. Let me give you a different vision. What what does it mean to have the good life in Jesus? That's what I want to look at today. And this will really be the theme throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, because this is really what Mark is getting at. But I want to ask this question. What does the good life look like when we follow Jesus? Let's first look at the call. Look at verse 42, what Jesus says. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. I heard when I was reading earlier, somebody, I don't know who it was in this section, said, what? (laughs) Wow. I mean, why why does Jesus say that? What what is he talking about? This is one of those shocking statements of Jesus in this whole paragraph that people call the hard sayings of Jesus. It's the things that you don't see on the Christmas greeting cards. Right? These are the difficult things. These are the things that Jesus said, and people turn their head and say, what? What, what, what are you talking about? Right, And this great millstone that Jesus is talking about is, is this massive stone that donkeys would pull and they would, they would pull and push it to grind the grain. And so it was well known in their agricultural uh, scene right there that, that this was something that was this massive stone that everyone would have had a picture of immediately. And Jesus says, if you're going to cause one of these little ones to sin, you might as well just go out there to the farm, big, you know, get that big stone, tie it around your neck and throw yourself into the lake. I mean, this this is gruesome and difficult. I mean, he's saying that would be better. Better than what? better Better than God's judgment for your sin. This is what Jesus is saying. But why does he say that? I mean, Jesus is using somewhat of hyperbole, right? He's trying to grab your attention to talk about the seriousness of sin. 
He's trying to make a point about sin. And, and notice that he's, he's contrasting between what he calls the little ones, which, which can also be translated children, but here it, it means something a little bit more broad. It's more like the humble people, the lowly people, the people that are not the greatest, right? So he's contrasting that with what the disciples are arguing about. The disciples are saying, who's the greatest? Who's on the top? And Jesus says, if you cause one of the people on the bottom to sin, now you're in trouble. Jesus is, is contrasting the difference, right? Because their vision for the good life is that you move upward and you get stronger and you get better and you get richer and you get more powerful. And so their vision is going upward and Jesus is talking about something at the bottom. Right? He's trying to grab their attention to show them the danger of their pride. The danger of their pride. I mean, this theme, it began in chapter 8. If you go back to chapter 8, we had to skip that because we preached on church leadership a couple weeks ago. But in chapter 8, you see this happen, and it begins to unfold for the rest of Mark that Jesus comes to the disciples, and he says this question. He says, he says who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And of course, the disciples, they've been hearing all these rumors, and so they start to tell Jesus, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, who was just beheaded, so he must have come back to life. And some people say that you're Elijah, who died hundreds of years before this, and now he's come back to life. And other people say that you're some other prophet that that is some great prophet. And and so they're trying to rattle off all these rumors that are swirling around Jesus. And then Jesus says this, he, he brings it a little closer to them. He says, who do you say that I am? I mean, this, this is the question that all of us have to wrestle with. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who do your parents say that Jesus is? Not what does your grandma say or your neighbor or your, your Sunday school teacher or whatever, but who do you say that Jesus is? And of course, Peter is probably the only one with enough courage to try to answer the question And Peter speaks up amongst the the group of the disciples, and Peter says, you are the Christ. It's famously called Peter's confession. This is the turning point in Mark. Remember, the first half of Mark is all about who is Jesus, and then Peter finally gets it. Peter says, you are the Christ. I mean, he he really understands it. He, He gets who Jesus is, but does he understand what that means? Because right after that, Jesus says, okay, well, the Son of Man has to be rejected, suffer, and die. And Peter says, no, that, that's not going to happen. And he starts to rebuke Jesus to say, no, 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 the Christ, you've got it wrong, Jesus. The Christ is the anointed one. He, he's the exalted one. He's the powerful one. He's God's anointed. How could he suffer and die? You, you've got it wrong, Jesus. Because, see, Peter's confession didn't match with Jesus' cross. And so he gets confused. How can this make sense? How how can I be following a Savior? How can I be following a Christ who's going to die, right? Peter's order of the good life is you live a great life and then you die. Jesus' order of the good life is you die and then you live a great life. You see the difference? He flips it. Peter thought, it's going to be great here. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going, to, I'm going to explore all the wonderful things in life. And Jesus says to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Listen, here's the point. Discipleship is a call to die. Discipleship is a call to die. Think about it like an elevator. Uh, in an elevator, you really can't go two directions at once, right? Uh, a few years ago, it's, I guess it's been seven years now, our, our twin daughters were born right across the street at Lakeland Regional Hospital. And, you know, you spend a couple days in the hospital as everyone recovers and the babies get used to new life out in the world. And uh, I am not able to do much at all in that process other than try to be as helpful as I can. And so here we are sleeping in the hospital, and it's my job to make runs for food and drinks and whatever else is needed. We forget something in the car, or I got to run to the house to get something and come back, or whatever it might be, my job was to go wherever it's needed. And if you've ever been to the hospital or stayed a couple days in the hospital, you know that the elevators are incredibly busy. There's lots of people moving and going, and people are in a rush, and there's, there's just people all over the place. And so if you go to the elevators, it's a good chance it's going to stop every single floor. And that's what would happen multiple times a day. And so I don't know how many floors are in the hospital, but I would go up and down and up and down. And every time you get in the elevator, it would stop at level one, level two, level three, level four. And every time you get on or off the elevator, there's always the same question. Are you going up? Or down. And you choose the elevator based on whether it's going up or down. This is what's happening in the text. Jesus and the disciples have got on different elevators. The disciples are trying to get on an elevator that's going up. And Jesus is saying, you're on the wrong elevator. We're going down, guys. This is the, and they're passing each other just like this thinking they're in the same elevator, talking about the same thing, and Jesus is saying, you're completely missing it. We're in two different elevators. See, discipleship is always countercultural. The culture's call, listen, the culture's call has always been opposite of the gospel. Always. This isn't some modern phenomena. The, the culture's call has always been the opposite. It's always been this. Sin is not that serious. What's serious is you. In other words, what you should focus on is not your sin and your relationship with God. What you should focus on is yourself. Well, what really matters is your dreams and your aspirations and your success and your career and your kids and your family life and, and your anxiety and your stress and all these things that are keeping you up in the middle of the night. What really matters is you and your betterment. You are what's important. You are the center of the universe. And you're going up, right? This is, listen, this isn't just the culture. This is cultural Christianity at the heart, too. Like the church, we've taken on this same message where church has become all about us. We show up and we want to get our coffee and our donut, and not that those are bad. We like the donuts. And we want to drop our kids off so we get a break from them. We want to show up in a comfortable, air-conditioned room, and we want to sit down and listen to somebody talk and not be too offensive. We just want church to be about us. We want church to be comfortable. We want church to be enjoyable. We want church to not push us. And, and so church becomes all about us, and we're concerned about our success. The questions we start asking, just ask yourself, what are the questions you're asking? How do I get ahead in my career? How do I get out of debt? 
How do I enjoy my marriage? How do I not kill my children? How do, how do I, like, how, these are the questions we're asking and we're hoping the church can answer and those are not bad questions. But is that Jesus' vision for discipleship? I don't think so. Jesus is less concerned about our success and more concerned about our sin. He'll go so far to say, some insane things to grab our attention, right? Discipleship is this call to die to sin and self. The way of Jesus is counterformation. And so if it's a call to die, how does that work? Let's look at the cause. I got to start moving here. Second point, the cause. Look at verse 43. Jesus goes on to say this, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. I mean, Jesus says the same thing three different ways here. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, right? He's saying the same thing three times to really try to grab your attention. But I want to be crystal clear before we move on. He's not saying that literally. He's not saying literally cut off your body parts, right? That This is not some way that Jesus is giving you justification for self-hatred or self-harm. That is not what, what he's talking about. In fact, self-hatred is, is the complete opposite of what he's calling us to, which is self-denial. Self-hate and self-denial are not the same thing. Do you understand that? Self-hate is actually a denial of the, the dignity, value, and worth of you as a human being made in the image of God. When you say, I hate myself, what you're saying is, I hate the image of God in me. And so self-hatred denies the image of God. But self-denial is actually self-love. Because you're saving yourself from yourself. Right? Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for yourself is to say no to yourself. Because you're saying, I love myself enough to not let myself do that dumb thing. And so what Jesus is calling us to is not self-hatred, but it's actually the most loving thing you can do. What's he saying here? He's, again, using this symbolic hyperbole. He's using these body parts, the the hand, the foot, the eye, to, to describe good things that have become bad things. Notice that Jesus never, in in this paragraph, he doesn't call you to cut out bad things in your life. He doesn't say, if if that sin is causing you to sin, cut it off. No, he's saying that the good thing, these body parts, these things that are made in the image of God, they've become bad things. Why? Because they've become ultimate things. He's getting to the heart of the issue. He's getting to the core, the root issue, the cause of what's happening and what the Bible would call idolatry, right? These, these good things that have become ultimate things. It's not that they're bad things in and of themselves. It's that they've become ultimate things. And because they've become ultimate things, now they're bad things. And Jesus says that, that is the cause that you're looking for. The, the idolatry of your heart, you're, you're looking for that thing because sin has to be cut off at the source has to be cut off at the source. And see, what makes, what makes uh, identifying these things so difficult is that they are good. Right? They're, they're not the evil, obvious things. They're, they're not the big, flamboyant sins. They're, they're the small, hidden, 
heart things. And so I just want to help us a little bit, just to get real practical. There's three questions that I have found helpful in my life that are just kind of diagnostic questions to help you understand your own heart and to maybe see where there's good things in your life that have become God things. Things that have become idols that you're worshiping. Things that have become too much of a love in your life. First one is this. Where does your imagination wander? Where does your imagination wander? Where, where, where do your thoughts go? Where, where, where does your heart go? When, when you settle down for just a moment and you get that moment where the kids are not screaming and, and the job's not emailing you and no one's calling you and, and there's nothing on TV to watch and you just have to be bored for a moment, where does your mind wander? It might be that woman or that man that you think are, are going to meet all your deepest needs. Maybe she'll really understand me. Maybe she'll really fulfill me. Or maybe he'll complete me and he'll, he'll understand and he can provide. And, and you're just longing for that relationship that'll be the thing. Or maybe it is your job and, and you're thinking, if I could just do this and I can do that and I can get ahead and I can, I can finally complete this task and I'll, I'll get promoted and blah, 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 or whatever it is. And you think that if you can just have a little bit more success at work, Everything will be okay. I mean, where, where does your mind wander? It might just be an idol. It might just be an idol. Second thing is this. Uh, where, where does your money go? Where does your money go? Jesus said it like this, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying there is not uh, that that your, your money will follow your heart. What he's saying is actually your heart will follow your money. He's saying if you want to know where, where your heart is, track your money. It, it's, it's been following your heart the whole time. Your, your heart is going to lead. Your, your, heart, your heart is going to be in, in those things. And so now sometimes I think in churches you can, you can kind of tell that people are, are struggling on one side or the other with money. Some people in church, they struggle with uh, you know, buying a lot of nice stuff and overspending money and, and idolizing money with, with a lot of money. And then you got people in church who, who think that all those people out there who have a lot of money, they idolize money, but inside, we struggle just as much, don't we? I mean, sometimes the, the greatest form of idolizing money is being cheap. You don't want to spend money. You just want to keep it all to yourself. You don't even have, you have like $15, but you're going to keep it all to yourself because it gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of worth. It gives you a sense of, I've at least got something and I'm not being frivolous and I'm not being reckless and I've got something that I can hold on to. Where does your money go or where does it not go? It might just be an idol. And the last one is probably the most revealing. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to suffering? I mean, suffering, listen, suffering and pain, it will always reveal what's in your heart. It'll always reveal it. And sometimes it's really surprising. Sometimes you weren't prepared for it. You, you thought, you know, I, I'm living my Christian life. I'm following Jesus. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm going to church. I'm doing all the right things. And then suddenly, bam, something hits in your life that was unexpected. And it's, it's suffering that, that maybe is greater than you've ever experienced or of a different kind than you've ever experienced. And everything falls apart. 
Because you didn't know in your own heart there were struggles there that, that were happening that all of a sudden come to the surface when you start suffering. And what can happen is what, what gets revealed is all the things you loved so much, too much, have been taken away. And you can tell by this, you can tell when there's bitterness or there's despair. Your anger isn't just anger, you're, you're bitter. Your, your sadness isn't just sadness, you're, you're despairing. You've lost it. It might just be an idol. How do you respond to suffering? See, the hard thing in this is Jesus is calling us to, to see these things in our life. What, what is the good thing that God has given to you that's causing you to sin? The hard thing, it's just so difficult, is that it's good. It's good. I mean, if it was something bad that you had to give up, that's an easier decision. It's ruining my life and I don't even like it. But Jesus is saying, this is a good thing in your life. It's become too much. It's become too much. And he says, the only way you can deal with it is you have to get rid of it. You can't compromise with an idol. You can't negotiate with an idol. You can't figure out a way to maybe have a 50-50 relationship with the idol. And like you, you have to cut it off. He says, you have to tear it out. You've you got to deal with it. In a complete way. So how do you do that? I mean, ultimately, we know that if you've ever tried to do that with any of the sin in your life, you know that is impossible. I mean, part of the shocking part of what Jesus is saying is what he's saying is impossible for us to do. To cut off all your sin. If you hear that and you think, yeah, I'll get that done by 3 p.m. this afternoon. You don't know your own heart. And so what's amazing about Jesus is he doesn't leave us there. He, he helps us from the outside deal with the inside. And this is the last point, the cross. Look at verse 49. Again, Jesus is cryptic here. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty? Again, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, remember, Jesus has been talking about the seriousness of sin and how God is calling us towards this life of discipleship that we take sin seriously. We follow him into his, his life, and he's saying, you got to cut off this sin, write all this language, or else you're in danger of hell. That's what he's saying. And when he says this language, I mean, Jesus, is, he talks about hell all the time in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about it more than anyone else in the Gospels. But this particular time, when he mentions it, he calls it a, an unquenchable fire. And the word he uses in the Greek is Gehenna. Now, if you're familiar with, with the Bible at all, you may have heard that word because often people talk about the, the imagery that comes out of that. But Gehenna was actually a real place. It was on the south side of Jerusalem, outside the city. It was, at that time, by New Testament time, it was a dumping ground. So it was the city dump where they would take all the trash and they would take all the human excess, all, all, all of that stuff. They would dump it in Gehenna and set it on fire. And because there's always trash and there's always mess and nastiness, Gehenna never stopped burning. It was an unquenchable fire. And so by that time, Jesus was using an image that everyone was familiar with and often people would refer to as this place 
of judgment. But here's the strange thing in Jesus' image. He talks about hell, and then he switches the fire imagery in this fascinating twist in verse 49. Right? He says, he says this, everyone will be salted with fire. But what in the world is Jesus talking about? Why is he being so cryptic? Just tell us what you're trying to say. Well, for their Jewish hearers, they would immediately thought of the temple sacrifice. If you go back to the Old Testament temple sacrifices, uh, what would happen in a burnt offering is that you would sprinkle salt on the burnt offering. And when you sprinkle salt on the burnt offering, it was purifying the sacrifice. And so you would salt the fire in that sense. Does that make sense? And so what's happening here is Jesus is contrasting two kinds of fire. There, there's a fire that is a fire of judgment, and then there's a fire that's a fire of redemption. There's a fire that's a fire of wrath for our sin, and then there's a fire that's a fire of mercy and purifying grace. And what's the difference? It's the salt that purified the fire. It's beautiful. See, Jesus is saying two things here. At the end, he closes. He says, you have to be that salt, right? You have to be that purifying thing in the world that, that helps us live at peace among one another and the, the little ones and the great ones can live together. That's what he's saying. But how does that happen? How does that happen? Only by the one who was first salted with fire. See, Jesus has been talking about his cross and now he's giving them hints about what it's going to do what it's going to do. Jesus purifies us at the consuming cross. See, London uh, witnessed a spectacular scene a few years ago. Uh, there was this massive burning of, of, a, of a replica of the whole city. It was this wood replica of, of the ancient city of London. And, and what happened was it, was it was basically a celebration honoring the 350th anniversary of the Great London Fire. And the original fire happened September 2nd, 1666, right? 1666, a long time ago. And, and it seems kind of odd that you would honor this terrible tragedy, this catastrophe where the whole city of London burned in four days. Like it, it ruined everything. People lost their lives. They lost their homes. They lost family members. All these th terrible things happened. It seems odd that 350 years later, you would be celebrating this catastrophe with None other than another fire. What, why, why would you burn a replica of the city to honor this great fire? Well, the reason is because if you look back in history, it's now etched in their history, in, in the culture of that city, that they all agree this was the turning point for us. This was the resurrection of London that we all came together and after this terrible fire that burned the whole city in four days, it bring life out of the death. And so what they're celebrating is not the death itself. What they're celebrating is the life that came out of that death. This is what's happening when Jesus is talking about his cross and, and the fire that his cross would be because no one, listen, no one would imagine that the way of the cross was the way of life. No one would celebrate that. Peter couldn't agree with it. The disciples couldn't understand it. The religious leaders couldn't believe it or comprehend it. But with the Christ, he came on his way to a cross. On his way to a cross. 
This is why he came. The Son of Man, Jesus said, must suffer and die. Sin could never be dealt with by us. It, it was too deep. It was too pervasive. It was too evil that we could just cut it off on our own. There's no way we could do it. And so Jesus had to carry that old rugged cross up that ancient hill called Calvary. And Jesus, as he made his way up that hill, he laid down and they drove those nails into his hands and feet and they picked him up on the cross in nakedness and shame. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had cut Jesus off. God had said, you are no more. I'm cutting you off from me because you have become sin for my people. The purest salt to ever touch the earth was burning in the wrath of God for you, for me, for our guilt, for our shame, for our idols, for our impurity. Jesus himself was salted with fire. As Jesus became sin and took our place, he experienced the hell of the cross so that we wouldn't have to. But listen, the gospel story doesn't end with death. It, death is on the way to life. This is what Jesus is saying. Early that Sunday morning, he got up. Right when, when Jesus gets up, what he's saying is death has no victory. Death has no sting. It is the way to life because life is the end. He went down to the depths of hell so that he could come up to the heights with us. Jesus got up with all power in his hands. He got up with all victory in his feet. He got up with all hope in his eyes. He got up with all love in his lips. He got up with all joy in his face. He got up with all purity in his heart. And so we can look back at the most tragic thing in human history, the Son of God dying on a cross, and celebrate. Celebrate. Because it's on the way to life that the cross was the way. See, Jesus is saying is this, this is how the good life works. He says, I've gone this way, now come, follow me in this way. He's inviting us into the good life, but it's only through death. It's only through death. See, repentance and faith is the way of the cross. It is, it is the way of death and life. Because repentance is simply turning away from sin, dying to sin and self. And then faith is turning towards life in Jesus. Right When I turn away from that and I die to that every day and I turn my eyes towards Jesus and I find life in Him, that is what it means to live the good life. It's a constant turning towards Him to say that the other things in my life, they are not going to bring me life. Success at my job is not going to bring me life. Uh, happiness in my marriage is not going to bring me life. Friends at my, at my, or my neighborhood are not going to bring me life. Whatever it is that you are longing for, it's only in him, and it's only through death, dying to this so that you can live to him. That's the good life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear you calling us. We hear you calling us towards yourself on the way of the cross, the way of the cross that seems so counterintuitive, it seems so terrifying that we would give up things that we've grown accustomed to love more than we should 
things that you've given to us to celebrate and delight and enjoy in, but, but have become a wedge between us and you. And God, we ask that you would forgive us. But even before you forgive us, open our eyes to see it, that we might confess with our mouth, that we might say with our own words, I don't need this. I'm cutting it off. What I need is you, Jesus. And in that, may you, may you be good on your promise that you would give us all that our heart desires and more. May you give us exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine because you are that. For all of us, whether we've been walking with you for five minutes or 50 years, we need that today. We need you. Give us your life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet.